Welcome to part two of our Reformation series in 2022 titled Post Tenebrous Lux, which means, if you were here last week, you know means after darkness, light. So we are looking at the spiritual darkness that had settled over the church during the Middle Ages and then the light of the gospel that began to shine through that darkness beginning in the early 16th century. And by the way, can I just uh, take a moment to thank you guys for your gracious love for me? The, the fact that you're letting my historical nerd flag fly for two Sundays this year. Uh, I love you guys. I appreciate you so much. I know it's a little strange. You, you, you come to Oak Hill and you expect to be able to open up your Bibles and have a particular passage exposited. And for two Sundays, we're not really doing that. I know that's weird and a little bit hard because I love to do that as well. Rest assured, next Sunday we'll be back in John 15. And we'll do exactly that. But today we're going we're gonna to do a whole bunch of history. We got maps, we got timelines, and we're also going to talk about some doctrine. Now, last Sunday in part one, remember, we were going to do a pre-Reformation message and a post-Reformation message. So last week, we covered the pre-Reformation era, and we answered the question, what were the conditions in the 16th century in Europe that caused this momentous theological revolution to sweep across Europe? And if you missed last week's message, I sort of gave all the introduction for that. Go to our YouTube page. Uh, I think it's worth giving a listen to part one if you missed it. Today, though, we're going to fast forward through the Reformation and talk about the post-Reformation era. What were the end results of all that took place and all that God did during this time? What we want to look at as well is the aspects of Reformed theology that today we here at Oak Hill have adopted as our own and parts of Reformed theology that we haven't adopted and hopefully to explain why. Before we go any further, let's review the goals that we established last week, the goals of this series. Why do we do Reformation? Three goals. Number one, to appreciate our historical and theological roots. All of us here, our faith is rooted back in the Reformation. Now, it goes obviously back to Christ and the apostles and the early church, and then there's this weird time, right? This thousand years to the time of the reformers. So we're all impacted by the Reformation. Number two, to see how God sovereignly moved in history through his servants, right? Through circumstances to ultimately restore his word as truth and to restore his church as well. And then number three, as children of the Reformation, we wanna grasp the importance of the doctrine that we believe today, that we stand firm in even today at Oak Hill. Make sense? Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we looked at a world map so that we could visibly see the, the context of the Reformation. And so I'm going to put this back up so you can see it. There's including the little blue dot. You see it? And right there in the Middle East, what is that? That's Jerusalem. We're always going to identify Jerusalem on the map just so you can see where it all began, right? Well, the reason I wanted you to see a world map last week so that you could get a visual image of just how small the known world was in the year 1500. At the time of the Reformation... Of the seven continents, four were still completely unknown. This is only 500 years ago. Four of the continents were unknown, and the fifth, Africa, was still 90% unexplored. So it's hard to believe that was just 500 years ago. Now, uh, some very astute folks in our church came up to me at the end of the service last week, and they said, hey, Jeff, what do you mean by the known world? I'm doing air quotes for the recording. The known world. What about all the indigenous people all over the world? Do they not matter? And I said, that's a great point, and of course they matter. They certainly matter because they are made in the image of God, right? And in fact, they matter so much that we want to send missions out to reach every single people group uh, on the globe, true? But when we talk about the known world in 1500, it was simply an issue of cartography, map making, right, and exploration. People living in Europe and Asia simply did not know at that time what lay across those vast oceans. And so accurate maps that show multiple continents really weren't even produced until the late 15th and early 16th century by both Arabs and by Europeans. Now, today, of course, we're well aware that there were indeed indigenous people groups all across the globe at the time. There were undiscovered African tribes. There were the native tribes in North America, the Aztecs and the Mayans in Central America, the Inca down in South America. There was this area called Oceania where you had the indigenous peoples of Australia and the tribes of Polynesia and more, all kinds of people groups that we were just unaware of in terms of map making in that day. Now, last Sunday, we also looked at a map which helped to explain why the Christian gospel developed in such a Eurocentric way. 
There are historical reasons for that. We saw how Paul and the early missionaries took the gospel in every direction, right? Every direction, but it developed the deepest roots when it went to the West. And a big part of why that it failed to take deep root in the East and in the South in Egypt is because of the rise and expansion of Islam in the 6th and 7th century. Beginning with Muhammad and later Islamic armies, they would conquer vast portions of that territory, the Middle East, North Africa, in fact, edging right up to the very uh, eastern border of Europe. So Islam plays a large role in, in where the church ends up really developing deep roots. So if I were to show you a similar map now that shows the world religions at the time of the Reformation in 1500, it would look something like this. Okay, again, this is the known world at the time, and Christianity at this point has taken root in that red outlined area. That's where it is, has gone deepest and is being uh, expanded upon. You see there Islam had taken over the Middle East at this point, and North Africa as well. And to the Far East, you have the land of the, the Mongols, the Mamluks of India, the Ming Dynasty of China. And amongst those people groups, they had all types of religions, what's called Tengrism, which was the original animist religion of the Mongols. You had Buddhism and Taoism in China. You had Hinduism and Islam in India. And yes, it's true there was also a smattering of Christianity that survived in those eastern regions. However, only as a small minority and really basically just a an interesting stream of Christianity called Nestorianism. How many of you guys have taken historical theology and studied Nestorian Christianity? Anybody? Okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> Nestorianism was a version of Christianity that had a heretical view of the person of Christ. And it had been condemned all the way back in the fourth century. So for 1,200 years, it had been uh, completely condemned, but it had survived to some extent in the eastern deserts uh, uh, on the map. And in fact, we know for, we know for a fact, by, based on the, the writings of the descendants of Muhammad, that it was Nestorian Christians that Muhammad came into contact with during his caravan days in Arabia. And in fact, you know that, you probably know that, that Jesus shows up quite a bit in the Quran. Well, he shows up in a very twisted way because of the fact that Muhammad had basically dealt with Nestorian Christians. So there was some Christianity in these, but not much. Now, last week, I also reminded you to, to think about how closely aligned uh, the Reformation was with New World exploration. Listen for the dates here. We know that Christopher Columbus made four voyages to the New World on behalf of Spain, right? And they were from 1492 to 1503. And Luther hangs his 95 theses in 1517. And two years later, Cortez lands on the coast of Mexico in 1519. So all of these things are had these really world-shaking events are all taking place at the very same time. Now here's what European explorers set their eyes on. See all the little squares? This is what this is what the European explorers were looking at. The Portuguese and the Spanish were the earliest and most active explorers in the New World. The Portuguese are in pink there, focused mainly on Africa, but also uh, set up an expansive kingdom in uh, Brazil. The Spanish, the yellow, the yellow squares there, mainly the Caribbean area. That's actually where Columbus landed, right? In the Caribbean, uh, Florida, Central America, Mexico, up into California, and of course, Peru. So the Spanish were very active. Later, the French get involved, right? The blue square there, and they end up in, in what we call Canada today and the northern United States. The Dutch in orange focus their attention down in Malaysia and Indonesia and what we call Australia today. They called it New Holland, which makes sense because they came from Holland. And then last to get into the game during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, the English there in the green square end up on the eastern coast of the United States. And of course, they called it New England. I think we still call it New England, don't we? Isn't there a team called the Patriots there? The New England Patriots? That's true, right. So here's why I bring this up. This is very interesting. In God's providence, exploration of the new world was done exclusively by nations professing to worship Jesus. Now, it's true that a lot of it was, was sponsored by Catholic monarchs, right? Portugal and Spain and France were solidly Catholic, but still, in one way or another, the name of Jesus was beginning to spread to the ends of the earth. The Ottoman Turks 
very powerful empire. They had, they had great fleets of ships. They were very active in the Mediterranean Sea, but in God's providence, they never explored west into the new world. Same thing with China. They also had fleets and ships, but they didn't venture anywhere outside of Southeast Asia. So in the 16th century, the gospel of Jesus, even if it's far from perfect at this point, is beginning to spread to all these other continents, to Africa, North America, South America, and Australia. Okay, one more map, and this one is critical. We'll spend some time here. What I want to do is zoom in now on the European landscape at the end of the Reformation. Okay, so we looked at the pre-Reformation. Let's look at what the map looks like at the end of the Reformation. Where do the parties sort of settle? Who ends up where? I know this is a little bit busy, but I'll try to walk you through it. Can you see that okay? All right, the outline in red. This is the region that breaks away from Rome and ends up becoming Lutheran. Lutheran. Now remember, at this point in history, there is no such thing as a country called Germany. Okay, that actually doesn't happen until the 19th century. Can you believe that? There were a people who considered themselves German, but they weren't a nation as we define them today. The German people were part of something called the Holy Roman Empire, right? This vast piece of territory in Europe that had a political ruler called the Holy Roman Emperor and a religious leader who was, of course, the Pope. But at the end of the Reformation, the Pope had lost most of his empire to Lutheranism, along with the Scandinavian countries to the north of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And that purple dot you see up there, that's where Wittenberg is. That's where it all started with the 95 Theses. So that's Lutheranism. The outline in blue is the region that broke away from Rome and ended up in the Calvinist camp. Calvinism. You see four regions there that followed Calvinism. The most important being the Swiss cantons. Uh, you see there the yellow dot. That is the city of Geneva, where Calvin will settle. The Swiss cantons were very important, but like Germany, there was no Switzerland at this point, right? Just these, what they called, they called them cantons. We would refer to them like states, like we have here in the U.S. Um, and these states were not at all united in terms of government or religion. In the 16th century, some of the cantons of, uh, of the Swiss people followed Zwingli, they became reformed, and others stayed loyal to Rome and to the Pope. And oftentimes, these cantons would actually go to war against each other over religion, like which, which of these two religions is going to be the state-sponsored religion in our state. They went to war with each other. In fact, that's how Zwingli died. He actually died on the battlefield fighting for Reformation principles. But it's here in Geneva where Calvin, who, by the way, is not Swiss, he's a Frenchman, but had to flee France because of persecution, where he's going to settle and begin to do his work and his writing. Then you have Scotland in the far north, also Calvinist, right? That's the home of John Knox and the root of what we call Presbyterianism that most of us are familiar with. The third area you see there is the Netherlands. This is where the Dutch Reformed Church is established, and the Dutch church is very important to theological development. Jacob Arminius rises from the Dutch church. You guys may know that name. The Arminian view of salvation actually comes from the Dutch church. And in response to his views about salvation, the Dutch Reformed Church not only condemns him and his views, but it's the Dutch church that ends up codifying what today we call the five points of Calvinism. And in 1568, the Dutch people actually begin fighting a war for independence. We think about our own American revolution against the British, and we're pretty proud of that. Well, the Dutch fought an 80-year war for their own independence. Spain had control over the Netherlands during this period. And so over an 80-year period, and this was a legitimate religious war. The Dutch flew the flag of Calvinism and fought against the Roman Catholics. And it took them 80 years, but the Calvinists won. The fourth region there is to the east, and that is what we called back in that day Bohemia and Moravia. Today we would refer to it as the, the Czech Republic and Hungary. This was the land of Jan Hus, the man who had been martyred by the Pope. And the people in that region, because of the way they were treated by, by Rome, were extremely zealous to defend Hus's legacy and theology. In fact, they referred to themselves as Hussites. In fact, they were so violently opposed to Rome. Get this, no less than seven military crusades were launched against the Bohemian people by the Pope, using the military to force them back into the Catholic fold, but they never did. So very strong Calvinism in that part. And then there's the outline you see in pink there. This is the outlier, right? This is the Church of England. Among all the Reformed lands, this is the outlier. 
How was the English Reformation launched? Ironically, through a, a, a crazy king named Henry VIII. I strongly recommend if you have a chance, there's many documentaries about his life. He is literally a madman, King Henry VIII. And it all starts because he requested an annulment of his marriage. He appealed to the Pope in Rome to annul a long-standing marriage that he had with Catherine, who was a Spanish princess, because in his words, she wasn't producing a male heir for him. And guess what? The Pope said, no. And it was on. That's literally all it took. Henry was a powerful monarch. He was a maverick. He was an alpha male character. He was not going to be shown up by the Pope. So he broke away from Rome and said, you know what? I'll start my own state church. Thank you very much. And he did. Now, he was still very much Roman in the way he viewed his religion. But by breaking away from Rome, he was able to, uh, to exert his power and to keep English money and English lands in England and in his hands. So it was very much a power play. But there were several men within his administration who were genuine reformers. In fact, they were the legacy of, of Wycliffe 150 years earlier. They called themselves Lollards, and they followed Wycliffe's theology. Men like Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell, both of whom were eventually martyred under the reign of Bloody Mary, the Queen, the queen of England. So Reformation came slowly to England, and eventually when Queen Elizabeth I comes to power, great monarch, but in her day, the Church of England becomes basically Roman Catholic light. I mean, it really is very much so. But there's also a silver lining in that, in God's providence, it's the lukewarm nature of the Church of England under Elizabeth that brings about another cry for reformation from a group of men called Puritans, right? The Puritans of England respond to the lukewarm nature of the reformation of the Church of England. And then eventually in 1620, a group of Puritans known as separatists we call them pilgrims, decide to sail across the Atlantic Ocean and land in Massachusetts. So it all comes full circle to where we sit here in California today. Now, there was a fourth Reformation stream that you don't see up there on the map, and it's because they didn't occupy a particular territory. They're known as the Anabaptists, and they are the ugly stepchild of the Reformation <laughs> by all accounts. They, are, they were so radically opposed to Rome and, and, and Catholic theology and so simplistic in their view of liturgy and such that they were persecuted by both Lutherans and Calvinists. In fact, chased out of their land, sometimes arrested, sometimes even executed by Protestant leaders because of their radical views. And one of their most radical views was what? Believer's baptism. Huh. And the rejection of infant baptism. That was crazy back in that day. And of course, the Anabaptists, what they did was scattered in all of these different lands in sort of subtle ways. And they show up in America in the Amish church, in the Mennonite church, and they still have very strong influence in many evangelical churches and Baptist churches as, as well. So the rest of the shaded areas you see there that aren't outlined, they remain staunchly Catholic. Again, Portugal, uh, uh, Spain, France, and of course Italy, strongly, staunchly Catholic. Although it is important to note, you can see where Geneva is, the yellow dot, it is right across the border from France. It's why Calvin chose to, to settle there. What he was fond of doing was training reform ministers and secretly sending them across the border into France to start underground churches. And they became known as the Huguenots of France, reformed ministers, reformed churches, meeting secretly under the nose of the king of France, who set out to hunt after them and to find them and persecute them as much as he possibly could. Also note, one last thing on that map, how close Islam is, how close the Muslim armies are to Eastern Europe and, and, and they're in North Africa as well, right? So close to Europe. And the Ottoman Turks, very few in the West have ever studied the Ottoman Turks. They're one of the most powerful empires to ever, to ever be on the earth. And they had taken down the invincible city of Constantinople a hundred years before this, right? And now they were pushing up through Bulgaria and Romania and the Balkan states. And you can imagine the fear among Christian Europe at this, at this point was huge. In fact, it became a huge factor in the time and the energy that the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, he didn't think he had time and energy to deal with Luther because he said, and he's on, on record of saying, hey, look, the Turks are at our gates, and here I am having to wrestle with this insolent German monk. 
The last thing Charles needed was this internal problem when he was dealing with Islamic armies all around Christian Europe. So before we get to the doctrinal issues now, one last thing. We should take a quick look at, at how the Roman Catholic Church responded at the end of all of these Reformation movements. And that takes us to a, a particular thing we call the Council of Trent. How many guys have studied the Council of Trent? Good, it's very important. Trent is, even today, okay, if you know, if you have Roman Catholic family, you know Roman Catholics, Trent is the definitive Roman Catholic response to all Protestants. And it remains the go-to council if you want to know what the Catholic Church actually believes. Back in the 16th century, certain factions within Catholicism came to believe that the Protestants needed to be answered. All the stuff had happened, kingdoms have fallen, and they needed an answer, both in terms of doctrine and in terms of moral reform of the church. So the Holy Roman Emperor, along with the Pope at the time, Paul III, convened this council of bishops. They met in the Italian city of Trent, in the spring of 1545. 1545, now that's 28 years after Luther hung the 95 Theses and just one year before Luther passed away. So it's within his lifetime. And this council would end up meeting over a span of 18 years. Three sessions over 18 years and about 250 high-ranking Catholic clergy ended up signing the final statement. So let me give you some of the things. I'm just going to give you a quick list of some of the things that they agreed upon there. By the way, it's important to know that most of the Roman Catholic clergy that came to Trent had very little deep understanding of Reformation theology. They just didn't care to study it. And any, I've, I've read some honest Catholic apologists who have admitted this. Basically, they came to the council with this idea that if Luther said it, it's false. So this was not a fair hearing of Reformation ideas, not, not in the least. So the first decision they dealt with was the issue of authority, and the council decreed that both scripture and tradition are two equal streams of truth. Two equal streams of truth. So that shot down the reformers' view of sola scriptura. Next, the bishops reaffirmed the church's sole authority to interpret the scriptures for the faithful, reestablishing the position and the authority of the Roman magisterium. Third, the Latin Vulgate was declared to be the only and one approved Bible of the church. That meant no other translations would be acceptable. The Latin Vulgate only. And on top of that, they declared that the seven apocryphal writings of the intertestamental period, what we call the Apocrypha, right, would be included in the Vulgate and would be put on the same level as the rest of the canon of Scripture. And they are still there to this day. One of the strongest statements made at Trent was the upholding of the seven sacraments of the church as a means of saving grace. We talked about that last week as a means of salvation. Trent also forbade what's called the communion in both kinds, meaning that the laity was allowed to come and partake of the bread, but not the cup. Have you noticed that in Catholic churches? Why? Because they said the danger of spilling the precious blood of Christ is too much for the laity to handle. They're also concerned about irreverence, drunkenness, and, 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 and the, sort of the practical aspects of, of having everybody drink from a cup. But the most severe rejection at the first session of Trent was reserved for the doctrine of justification by faith alone because that was the one thing that got under their skin the most. Justification by faith alone. Anyone who taught that doctrine was said to be anathema under the Catholic system. What does that mean? Excommunicated from the church and, and separated from eternal life as far as the papacy was concerned. At the second session, four years later, we had a new pope, but we had similar results. The bishops rejected all forms of the Protestant views of the Eucharist, and they reaffirmed the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the literal transformation of the, the, the bread and the cup into the literal body and blood of Christ. They also reaffirmed the various forms of penance and holy pilgrimages as a means of grace, you guys, to receive forgiveness of sins. Talk about salvation by works. Then it takes 10 more years for the third and final session to be called another new pope. And now they finally got to some moral issues. Clerical celibacy was reaffirmed. We talked last week about how much sexual immorality had crept into the Catholic system. Celibacy was reaffirmed. Clerical residence was finally put down, meaning you couldn't be a bishop in an area and not live there, <laughs> which some of these guys become so wealthy and powerful. They, they had titles all over Europe, but now... They said you had to have residence. 
Sadly, the veneration of images, images, statues was upheld as a means of grace. And the council took unprecedented steps to increase the power of the Pope. First of all, giving him full and sole authority of what the church calls the index, which is, and it's still, out, it's still true today, the Catholic Church has a list of books that, are, that can be read by the faithful and a list of books that are banned, that cannot be read by Roman Catholics. And the council formally recognized the Pope perpetually, perpetually, forever, as the vicar of Christ, the man who sits as the earthly representative of Christ on the earth. So that's Trent in a nutshell. It's a great study. It's a whole sermon series. But how do we summarize this? Basically, Trent was a complete and total rejection of the Reformation. It was a poke in the eye at all of the reformers. The battle lines were drawn deeper. And by the time this final session was over, there was absolutely zero possibility of reconciliation. The reformers had put forth five great declarations about salvation. You know these, right? The five solas. Sola Scriptura, salvation revealed in Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, salvation offered by God's grace alone. Sola Fide, salvation received by faith alone. Solus Christus, salvation purchased by Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, salvation to God's glory alone. And the Roman Catholic Church responded with this. Salvation through the church, on the authority of the magisterium, by means of the sacraments, mediated by the priesthood. That's what Trent did. Folks, that is a very different gospel. In fact, that is no gospel at all. And nothing has changed to this very day. That's why we need to have a heart for our Roman Catholic neighbors who have been trapped in this lie, caught up in this lie, this tradition of religion that they feel they can't get out of. We need to have a heart for them, a love for them. We need to have a zeal to reach them with the truth. Amen? Okay, in the time we have left, I want to point out some doctrinal issues that came about. Now, remember last week we talked about the two big ones, right? The two big ones. If you're ever talking to a Roman Catholic friend, two, the authority, what? the authority, what is truth? And secondly, justification, how is one saved? But there are other things as well that flow out of those first two that I want to talk about this morning. Here's the first one. We call this the priesthood of all believers. Have you heard this term? This is very important. This is something that Luther was adamant about. See, Rome had always taught that there was a very sharp distinction between the sacred and the secular. And there was a very sharp divide between the clergy and the peasantry. And yes, that's a word that they use, the clergy and the peasantry. Those in the priesthood were said to be of a higher order of men, and the rest were not fit to manage their own souls. That is true language that they used. And that perspective is very useful if you want to design a religious system that controls the people. A system where the congregation has absolutely no voice whatsoever. They're only to submit. The problem is it's not found anywhere in Scripture. It's not found anywhere. In sharp contrast, the Reformers came along and preached the biblical principle of Coram Dio. In Latin, in the presence of God. And what they meant by this was Every single Christian is called to live their entire lives in the presence of God, to live under the authority of God, to the glory of God, and without the need of any other man to stand as a mediator between themselves and God. That's what they meant by that. And Luther and others pointed to 1 Peter 2 as, a great, as the key text for this principle. It's on the screen, but I'll read it to you. You also, Peter writes, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Note, this is not a particular class of Christians, a clergy. This is every single Christian, a holy priesthood. You are a chosen race, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, when we step back and we start looking at who we are in Christ, this is one of the images that should come to your mind. This is a powerful picture of who you are in Christ, a holy priesthood. So Peter's using Old Testament imagery here and applying it to New, Test New Covenant believers like us. See, the Old Testament priests were chosen by God for one purpose, and that was to serve him with their lives and to offer up sacrifices. And now Peter applies, applies that to us. 
The Old Testament priesthood was actually a type, right? A shadow of what's to come, foreshadowing the ministry of the Messiah who's gonna come and be both our sacrifice and our high priest. So when the temple veil that covered the Holy of Holies in the temple was torn in two at the death of Christ, God was showing us that that Old Testament priesthood was no longer necessary. The way had been open to every single believer. And so everyone who is in Christ now shares in the priestly status of the Lord. There is no special class of mediators who stands between us and God. And in fact, in 1 Timothy 2.5, the Bible literally says this. I mean, if you want a text to take your Roman Catholic friends to, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It could not be any more simple than that. Amen? We're all priests. And Luther wanted to highlight this, not peasantry and clergy, but a holy priesthood who's designed to be living sacrifices before God and to lift up sacrifices and praise to the one who is who has rescued us from spiritual darkness. And that brings us to the second and very much connected principle of the right of private interpretation. Not only are all Christians priests before God, but we have the right, the authority, and I would even say the obligation to read, interpret, and apply the teaching of scriptures for ourselves. For ourselves. No longer do we place our trust in the teaching of just a a few select men in a city far away who lay down their binding opinion on us from on high? No longer, Luther said. Instead, like Bereans in the days of the Apostle Paul, every believer is called to hear and receive biblical teaching, to check it with the scriptures, and to allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate and teach us. Here's the passage, Acts 17, 11, right? But these, the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the word with great eagerness, that's good, examining the scriptures daily. Wait, they didn't go to a priest for this? No, they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. By the way, you should be doing that with me on Sunday, right? Check to see if what I'm preaching is in the scriptures. It's true, right? Now that truth about the Bereans has never been the goal of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, their goal has been quite the opposite, to keep the Bible out of the hands of the laity and away from private interpretation. In the early 1800s, Pope Pius VII, you know, said it out loud. Here's what he said. This is a quote. He said, the indiscriminate distribution of Bibles in native languages has produced more harm than benefit and is eminently dangerous to human souls. Can you imagine reading God's word is eminently dangerous to the soul? This is why the Roman Catholic Church for centuries burned any scriptures translated in common languages. This is why they set out to execute anybody who tried to translate the Bible. They had William Tyndale arrested and strangled to death before they burned his body at the stake. Why? For translating English Bible from the original Greek. They tried to get their hands on Luther, but he was protected and, 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 and basically hidden away. They, this is, this is amazing. At the Council of Constance in 1415, John Wycliffe, who had died already, was posthumously, posthumously, that's a great word, condemned by the bishops. He was called, get this now, this is a quote, that pestilent wretch of damnable heresy who invented a new translation of the scriptures in his mother tongue. That's what the bishops declared at the council for a guy that loved God's word and wanted it translated into English. And in one of the funniest moments of the Reformation, if there's anything funny about it, this one's funny. The bishops at Constance ordered Wycliffe's bones to be exhumed from the grave and burned and thrown into a river. You talk about holding a grudge. That's what they think about private interpretation. Now, as we say this, we do have to be careful about this principle, about overemphasizing it, and we end up acting like Anabaptists. So we got to be careful, right? That's theological humor. <laughs> totally nerdy. Okay, here's what the Reformers didn't mean to imply with this particular right, that every Christian is free to find his or her own meaning in the text. That is not what they meant. Oh, well, I think it means this, or I think it means that. That is not 
what the reformers had in mind. That would lead to chaos and that would damage souls, right? No, we're not owed our own personal version of what God intended to say. Okay, the text of scripture represents the mind of God and it's our duty as his people to employ a proper hermeneutic so that we're able together as a church to dig out his intended meaning and to do so in a way that is both sound and accurate. So the purpose was not to reject the authority and the function and the office of ministers in the church. In fact, in Ephesians 4, it says that God gave pastor teachers to the church to help in this very thing. And then in 1 Timothy 3, we let, he laid out qualifications for elders who are called to have the gift of teaching. And so proper interpretation of the scripture is always going to be helped along by those type of men as they're led by the Holy Spirit. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here at all. And this is something the reformers stressed, that the privilege of private interpretation comes with a great responsibility, right? That churches would learn how to interpret and teach accurately. And that's what we strive to do each and every week here at Oak Hill Bible. Amen? So those are two huge things that we have taken from the Reformed Church and are practicing today. I want to give you a couple that we've rejected, a couple that we've just said no to, okay? Three in particular. Here's the first one, pedo-baptism. Pedo-baptism is a staunchly Reformed doctrine, the baptism of infants and children. Now, sadly, today there are quite a few denominations that hold, get this now, that baptism actually saves that's true of the Roman Catholic Church, isn't it? But not just the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Churches as well, and the Church of England, and the Church of England's crazy American cousin, the Episcopalian Church, teaches that as well. And most tragically, are you ready? Many Lutheran churches teach the same thing today. Now, the Reformed and Presbyterians also baptize infants, but with a different goal in mind. They do not teach that it saves. What they believe is that baptism introduces the child into the covenant community and that it serves as a sign and a seal of the new birth with the hope that someday the child will come to faith, saving faith on his or her own and fulfill that promise. So it's, it's baptism of children and infants, but with a different goal in mind. Now, deep breath on this one. I have a lot of, a lot of my heroes in the ministry practice pedo-baptism. A lot of my heroes from church history, including all the guys we've talked about already, except for the Anabaptists, God love them, they all practice pedo-baptism. So there's room for gracious disagreement on this, but you have to know this for sure. If any church or any believer teaches that bapti the, the waters of baptism actually save there's no room for gracious disagreement anymore. That needs to be condemned. So we need to find that balance. Does that make sense? It's very, very important. Okay, so what is the Reformed argument for infant baptism? Well, primarily the argument is made that baptism is the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament circumcision. That's the basic argument. So just as circumcision joined an Israelite boy to the Abrahamic covenant, today they would say baptism joins a child to the new covenant. And look, this is an idea that flows out of what egghead scholars call covenant theology. Not going there today. That is a whole sermon series in and of itself. But for today, here's the key, the key thing that I want you to know. There simply is no text in the New Testament that describes baptism as a new covenant replacement for circumcision. You're not going to find it. Now, some, some will use Colossians 2, 11, and 12. You can look it up as, as to support some connection between the two. But in my opinion, it's a very weak argument and certainly not explicit enough to form a whole doctrine around. But you can look that up on your own. But further, nowhere in the New Testament is baptism described as a sign or a seal of the new covenant or of the new birth. You're not going to find that language. In fact, Ephesians 1 tells us that the seal of the new covenant is not baptism, but a person. Okay, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, that's key, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So under the new covenant, we enter into the community of faith, not by baptism, but by believing, Paul says, by placing our faith in Christ alone. And when that happens, you are sealed in Christ 
by the presence of the Holy Spirit who's given as a gift within you. That's the seal. So in our understanding of this issue, baptism should take place only after somebody repents and believes. That is, they come to saving faith in Christ. And then they're baptized as an outward declaration of faith that, takes, that has taken place in the heart. It becomes a physical symbol or a word picture of how we've been cleansed from sin and how our, the going under the water represents the death and burial of Christ and coming out of the water represents his coming to new life. It is a physical symbol and a word picture that we're to do in obedience to Christ's instruction. Amen? Now, there's a second argument that the Reformed put forward in that, and that's the idea, and some of you may be aware of this, in the book of Acts, there are several narrative stories about entire households being baptized. Entire households, right? So a couple of things I would say about that. The implication, by the way, is if it's an entire household, then there must be infants involved. There must be children involved. A couple of things. First of all, here's a, here's a hermeneutical tip for you. Always be careful about forming doctrine out of the book of Acts. Just be cautious. Why? Because the book of Acts covers a very unique transitional time in the history of the church. And things that happen in the book of Acts aren't always normative for all churches in all times, right? In other words, sometimes it's descriptive and not prescriptive, the book of Acts. So that's just a caution. But second, there's no way to know the ages of the people involved when it just says entire households. There is no explicit statement anywhere in the New Testament of a, of a child or infant being baptized. Explicitly, none. Third, throughout the book of Acts, the Bible says over and over again that the people being baptized had a few things in common. Number one, they listened to the word of truth being preached by the apostles. Number two, they repented of their sins. And number three, they praised God and sometimes even manifested miraculous spiritual gifts. Friends, those are all things infants can't do. Those are all things that children cannot do. They cannot make that conscious decision to repent of their sin or to put their saving faith in Christ. They cannot commit to following after the Lord. They cannot possibly identify with this concept of cleansing of sin and, and being buried and raised to new life in Christ. This should be obvious to us, but it's not to many. But infants and children cannot do that. Now, the third argument for beta baptism is really quite silly but I'll bring it up because it leads me to a really important point. In Matthew 19, the reform will say, Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. That's great. It has nothing to do with baptism. Okay, it proves nothing about baptism. Yes, Jesus loves children. That's why here at Oak Hill, we do baby dedication services, not baptisms. We do bring the children to Jesus, right? And we pray over them and we pray that someday they would put their, their faith in Christ alone, but we don't baptize them. Make sense? So that's one part of the Reformation we've not taken on. Here's a second one, and that's amillennialism. Ooh, here's a whole series. Adam's like, oh, are we going through Revelation now? No. Okay, so we hold to a premillennial view of the last days, and what we mean by that is that Christ is someday going to return to earth and reign as a king from Jerusalem, literally and physically, for a thousand years. We believe that is a literal promise in the New Testament. We believe it's a literal fulfillment of prophecy in the Old. But for the Reformed, and once again, this goes hand in hand with covenant theology, they hold to an amillennial view of the end of the days because, this is key, they do not believe in a future salvation of ethnic Israel. Okay, again, this is a whole other preaching series. I'm not going to get into it. But in all millennialism, the thousand years promised in Scripture is not meant to be interpreted literally because it's happening right now in their view. Even though it's been 2,000 years, the thousand years is happening. It's, 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 a, it's a metaphor. It's spiritual in their eyes. It's happening right now. We're in the millennial kingdom right now, according to this view. In fact, we've been in the millennial kingdom since the moment that Christ ascended into heaven. So they would say at his first coming, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. And when he returns, he will consummate the kingdom of God. What that means is there's no rapture of the church in this view. There is no millennial period at all. The next thing that happens is Christ returns. He judges the world and brings in the eternal state. Now, again, there are many godly men who are amillennial. I mean, again, some of my favorite guys in ministry, heroes of mine, 
in theology are all millennials. So we want to make sure that we, we, we maintain respect for them and a gracious disagreement. We just don't think this is true. And the reason for that comes back to our hermeneutic. We don't believe that passages that look very historical, very prophetic, should be spiritualized. It's just not a good hermeneutic. So we look at Old Testament prophecy, we look at the promises in Revelation, and to us, they look like they should be taken in the most plain meaning possible, not spiritualized. Make sense? Last thing, and then I'll go away. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right, number three, Christian theocracy. Oh, no, now we're doing it. Christian theocracy. I'm gonna do a quick plug for the underground here. In a few weeks, we're going to upload a whole episode that Adam and I did on Christian nationalism, which is becoming a huge thing in the news right now. Christian nationalism. This is a hot topic. As our culture here in America continues to spiral at a dizzying pace, more and more Christian leaders, you're seeing them come out and say, we need to start fighting harder in the culture wars to reestablish America as a Christian nation. You're seeing that language come out. And Calvin held this view. Calvin held this view. He attempted to turn the city of Geneva into a Christian kingdom on the earth. We say no. But let me just share this because I love Calvin, right? You know I love him. He's, he's, he's my little avatar on Facebook. So, I mean, his desire was born out of good intentions. He wanted to take control of Geneva, which by the way, was in terrible shape when he got there. It was awful. And he was able to turn around the city by setting his heart on social reforms that were rooted in the gospel. Scholars call it social sanctification. And he was successful in many ways. His view was basically, if you transform the hearts of your citizens, you're gonna change the city as a whole. And I agree with that. I I think that's true. But what he did was he set out to enforce a moral code for the city. And and basically to bring the lives of the people of Geneva into conformity with the benefits of the gospel message. I get that. And by the way, he worked hard. He preached every single day in Geneva, twice on Sundays. The guy was a beast. He administered a guarded communion table each and every week. He cared for people by visiting them in homes. He devoted massive amounts of time and energy into writing the institutes, right, of the Christian religion, and to training up young gospel ministers and, and, and being a, a place of refuge for fellow reformers like John Knox. He did all, in fact, he worked so hard, so tirelessly that he was constantly sick and he died young at the age of 54. So best of intentions. Now, why do I say we have not picked this up? Why would we not do this today? Because God hasn't called us to. I, I'm just going to tell you, God has not called us to do this. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? He said, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is spiritual, not political. And as Christ followers, this world we live in, this country we live in, this city we live in, this is not our true home. It's not. Now, caveat to that, do I think we should raise our voice as citizens? Absolutely. Sure. Because we believe gospel principles, what God says about the world, would be best for everybody to embrace. It would help, would it not? Because it's God's word. So yes, we should put our voices into the marketplace of ideas. But our goal is not to establish a a Christian kingdom on the earth. And so we got to find that healthy balance there. In a practical sense, we have to remember, listen, Christianity is not like Islam. It's not. It's not a coercive faith where we impose a moral code on other people, where we force people under the threat of state power to believe what we believe or to practice what we practice. That would not be Christianity. And here's the thing. If you govern a city or a country under biblical principles, when people step out of line, you have to punish them. What does that look like in a Christian city or a Christian country? See, this is eventually what happened in Calvin's Geneva. It became a stain on his legacy as a reformer. The strictness of that code in Geneva produced, guess what? Rebellion in the people. Have you heard about this, the human nature? You put a code on people and they rebel. Well, there was a a whole group of people in Geneva. They called themselves the Libertines and they wanted to oppose Calvin at every step. And all they did was object, object. They were nominal Christians and they said, look, we want to sin as we please. Leave us alone. We don't like your moral code. 
And so that created so much conflict in Geneva. It created outrage and uprisings, even riots. People were punished. People were banished from the city. And the reality is you will not stop people from sinning by using a moral code. They will keep sinning. And in one very famous case, some of you know about this, a heretical theologian, Michael Servetus, came into Geneva from France. He fled France, came to Geneva, started preaching anti-Trinitarian doctrine. He was a flat-out heretic. Now, if you're running a Christian city and that man comes into your city and he preaches in public heretical ideas, what do you do? Well, the city council of Geneva had him arrested, imprisoned, and burned at the stake. In a Protestant city, this is the stain that has been left on Calvin's legacy. And it's sad, but they became not that much better than Rome because of this desire to establish this Christian theocracy. Three things that we say no to here at Oak Hill. So I'm going to wrap up with this. I'm way over my time. I am. One of the things that I, as I step back and look at this and look at some of these doctrines, I want to plead with you guys to resist the temptation to become a system Christian. A system, this idea that I want to identify with a particular system, be that five-point Calvinist or, or thoroughly reformed, whatever it is, just be careful that you don't fall into a system because you like the system. Be a biblicist. Be one who looks at the scripture. Sola scriptura, right? Not systems. Now, maybe you, can, maybe you look at the five points of Calvinism and you say, I see them in the scriptures. Awesome. That's great. Be a biblicist. It's one of the reasons why we're an independent church here at Oak Hill. We don't want a denomination over us telling us what we have to believe and teach. We want to look at sola scriptura and teach accordingly. That make sense? And then lastly, let's commit to study our history and our theology. Study the roots of it. Semper reformanda was this great cry of the Reformation, always reforming. That is the story of us. We should be individual believers who are always reforming our hearts. Amen? And as a church, always reforming this place, this local church that we love, so that more and more it conforms with the word of God. All right, that's enough. Let's bow our heads. <laughs> oh Lord, thank you for time today to, to talk about your sovereignty, to talk about the great things you have done in our world, the way you have in your providence, spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, Lord, and the fact that you call us to be a part of this kingdom and a part of this movement, this part, part of this reform, constantly ref, reforming process, Lord, in this church. Lord, you are so good to us. You are so gracious to us. And we continue to praise you for what you're doing at Oak Hill in each and every series that we go through, that you're showing us new things, that you're guiding us by your spirit, that your spirit's illuminating the text of scripture. We do thank you, as Grant said earlier, for those who have gone before us, who paved a way, sometimes with their very lives, so that we could be here today to sing your praises and to study your word. Lord, even as we give now, as, as Grant, we go back into song and, and Grant leads us, Lord, and the ushers come forward. Lord, I pray for for our giving, for the generous hearts of our, our congregation, that you would bless each and every gift, that you would use it to further your kingdom and to glorify yourself. Thank you for this time. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.